PhD in our feminism, pop culture, and politics as discussed by two professional killjoys. I'm Rachel. And I'm Melody. And today we'll be discussing the book Capitalist Realism by Mark Fisher and all of the many topics that will come out of that. But first, hi Melody. How are you? Hola, I'm doing well. I just got back earlier this week from a trip to Denver to drop my brother off in Denver for his clinical clinicals, I guess, to finish up his physical therapy clinical doctorate. All that to say, yeah, it's well, it's really impressive for him because he started out at a community college. And like when he was in high school, nobody thought he would amount to anything because he had dyslexia Mm -hmm. and just wasn't succeeding at the same rate as the other high schoolers Mm -hmm. that he went to school with, in which they had lots of privilege and resources and stay at home parents. So I'm just very proud of him to actually work hard to get there, especially when so many people thought he wouldn't amount to anything. Totally. That's great. Excluding our family. But yeah, within the school system, it was a little ridiculous. Yeah. Um, And then I I just came back from our mutual friend, uh, Dulce's uh, Dulceria Bakery, which we interviewed her um, a couple months ago on the show. I picked up a cake for my nephew, Liam. It's cocoa inspired and it's very beautiful. Mm. And I picked up some just baked goods from that shop. And it's always just nice to see her. She's always so happy. and Yeah. Oh, uh, I just still get oh, warm you know. fuzzies thinking about yeah. that interview day. That yeah. So nice. Yeah. And I saw her madre there, too. And she was happy to see me. So. Oh, that's great. That's great. Yeah, it was. I just love that space. So, just, yeah. And I got some of their conchas, their concha cupcakes. Mm hmm. Oh my god, that's just so it's so good. Like yeah. and it's vegan and but even if it was you know what I mean? Like usually yeah. with vegan bakery you're like, well, I get the vegan version, that's cool. But like this stuff is so good. It's just I don't know how they do it. It's amazing. Just amazing. Yeah. That's great. So so that was awesome. Uh-huh. And yeah, that's about it. Things are fine. School started and everything is working just fine as it always does. So okay. no big news there. How are All you right. doing? Well, speaking of vegan baked goods in Minneapolis, um, I would like to give a shout out to Bakery Box Minneapolis, which is uh, one human who bakes donuts in their kitchen and then offers them to people. You, buy, I mean, you buy them. And they were just so, like, so fucking good. Like, truly the best donut I've ever had in my life, ever. Um, Where did you get it? Their apartment. Um, I'm oh, not you sh- go to their apartment you go to, their to apartment. get donuts? Yep, exactly. So... You order it online. You like you have to order. You have to pre-order. Um, they make a they make different flavors every weekend, and then you email them and say, "I would like, I would like some donuts, please. This is how many oh. I would like." And then and then you pick them up. They were so good. We heard about them from a friend, and we are very. And then I started following them on Instagram, and I'm very glad. And they're like punk and queer, and it's you know have have a dog. So, so that what was they called again. Bakery Box, Minneapolis. The handle Bakery is Box. Bakery Box okay. MPLS. So that was part of a fun part of my weekend. Prior to that, I also did some traveling. I was in Napa and Sonoma, wine country in California, with my partner's mom. Well, my partner's family. Um, she successfully finished chemotherapy and is in the clear after a, a breast cancer diagnosis that she got last spring, and wanted to take the family to celebrate to Napa. I feel like. It was, I'm so, first of all, so incredibly happy that her health is better. It was really great to spend time with the family. And also, of course, it's hard for me to travel, especially to places with wealth. Like Napa is a very rich part of California. Um, And of course, I was thinking about labor practices the whole time and thinking about, you know, 
how much money it cost to take that trip, which they graciously and kindly paid for. But, you know, so it's always all those complicated feelings. We've had a couple episodes about complications with traveling. So refer back to those if you're interested in hearing more of my thoughts on that. But it was it was good to, again, you know, main main part is that she is healthy and we got to be together to celebrate that and that's good. And school started like my students a lot as usual um, so far. And uh, what else? It's Aquarius season, I think officially. So happy birthday season to us. My birthday's this coming week. Hooray. And uh, I think that's it. I think that's my update right now. Okay. Thank you for that wonderful update. Mm -hmm. Moving right along, would you like to talk about people ruining our dinner party? Yeah, for sure. Sorry, just took a sip of coffee. I don't know if you heard that, listeners. So we're going to talk about the Gillette ad. Gillette put out a commercial that is very much like conversation about the Me Too movement. It's it's in response to and a sort of a an homage to, I guess, the news cycle since hashtag Me Too, hashtag Time's Up, and generally just the sort of new cultural acceptance and expectation that men will be sort of held accountable and called out for sexism and harassment and violence, et cetera. And so it's like a montage of news clips and, you know, fancy music and voiceovers and, you know, close-ups of men's faces looking accountable (laughs) or, you know, thoughtful or something. So just sort of an artistic sort of homage of, of the moment. And then it ends as an advertisement for a razor, Gillette sort of saying that, do, what's, do you remember the specific tagline, like how they wrap it in? Yep. Men deserve better or something. Well, their slogan for a long time has been the best a man can get. So they actually were arguing against their own slogan that the current like men today are not really illustrating that they are the best that they can be. be. Right. And so they were actually playing off of their own slogan mm-hmm. and saying that um, asking men to actually be the best that they can be and showing what was like basically showing how men have messed it up and then also how they can interject in specific situations like getting their kids to stop fighting violent their boys to stop fighting violently with each other calling out other men when they are catcalling women on the street etc so that's how they wove in their slogan when they were talking about all those instances your description is like like seeping with cynicism yeah. <laughs> I like I thought it was a really sweet ad. Like I know what the I know what the critique of it is, but yeah, we, we just I mean, don't talk about toxic masculinity enough and I thought it was just really well done as like a commercial. Agreed. I mean, I teared up. I mean, I was like moved to almost tears by it. So, 100%. It's well done and yeah, but but of course I'm of course I'm cynical. I mean, it's a corporation We've talked about this in relationship to Nike using Colin Kaepernick. We've talked about this, I think, in relation to the Dove advertisements. I use the Dove advertisements a lot to talk to my students. Um, you know, they're owned by Unilever, which also creates Axe. And Axe has some of the most sort of sexist advertising that you could possibly imagine. And yet the company is like, oh, well, to sell women's products, we'll do it about self-esteem and empowerment. But to sell our men's product, we'll, you know, use very thin, normatively attractive, mostly white, you know, women, et cetera, et cetera, that, you know, and objectify them, et cetera. So do I think there are some ad executives at Gillette who actually believe, you know, that they want to make the world better by addressing sexism? Sure. Do I think that their bottom line is still profit? Yeah. And if 
and if that that they're responding to something that is hot and acceptable right now and trending and that is sort of the bottom line but I do agree like there is value in having a commercial like this that addresses toxic masculinity yes both hand yes all of the above yes although I wonder with both with Nike and this ad if it wasn't a risk any ways for them to take because there's obviously the people that are ruining our dinner party I should say are the people that the backlash against the Gillette ad and not in our way but these men who are like I'm throwing out my razors because you can't tell me how to treat women and my children I don't know why I have a southern accent I just thought because there are many southern people who are not like that at all as we know (laughs) I just like to practice accents yes (laughs) um Okay, but, you know, you don't have to tell me how to raise my children, okay? I'm just drinking some brewskis, and who cares if they beat themselves up? It's just part of the, it's just part of childhood, you know? See, it comes in all shapes and sizes. Uh-huh. Um, but, so, like, they're the annoying ones in this situation. I just, it, I don't know. I'm not, I still like it. I, I'm, like, still on the pro train. But I want to wrap it up back with uh, your discussion of, who owns Dove because Procter and Gamble is the multinational corporation that owns Gillette and mm-hmm. Procter and Gamble have had so many horrible like they have issues with child labor um, overseas yeah. their tampons <laughs> they had some tampons that were so absorbent that they caused a lot of women to have toxic or Ugh. people who use tampons to have toxic shock syndrome yeah um, which can happen with any tampon but theirs were just like so absorbent that it just caused you know most a lot of cases were linked back to their tampons yeah and then animal testing i remember when i was a baby vegan procter and gamble were like the the evil company that like did Mm. so much animal testing Mm -hmm. on their products and they refused to stop doing it so they're not a great company either and there's a lot of hypocrisy within that but i still feel like i agree that they're taking they're taking advantage of the moment i just i feel i still feel like the me too movement and all this like men you know being held accountable finally for sexual harassment and assault is not like I just I don't feel like it's um everybody's on the same page with it to the point where you could pull off an ad Uh, I hear you but even if not everybody's on the same page it's still literally a a trending hashtag so Mm -hmm. when they post that commercial they know it'll get hashtagged with that they know it'll get circulated right so even if people don't agree with it because it's controversy right like they knew it would be controversial and my my hope is that those people protesting are actually a very tiny number of people. But of course, the news cycle is going to amplify the like, I don't mm-hmm. know, let's say like 100 tweets in protest came out out of, you know, thousands and millions mm-hmm. of people. That That's still going to make news and it's going to make it feel, and this is actually going to tie into our, our book conversation, I think. Um, it's going to make it feel like it's actually this real massive risk mm-hmm. to them of people who are who are protesting this. But it's probably not. A huge number of people that it's actually you know it's not going to hurt their stock or anything I don't think so but I no, hear you that's and I the think thing. like once the sales reports come out yeah yeah no I think and I mean I think another more positive view of this is you know I'm always like social movements are the only thing that cause anything to change in society ever at all and I think here's an example of that like social movements created cultural consciousness around something that is now finding its way into mainstream advertising which doesn't mean that the advertisers are good but it does mean that this is now on everybody's radar and uh, we have social movements to thank for that not not Gillette you know yeah that's a really good point speaking of toxic masculinity 
Can we just do a quick, can we just talk really briefly about the, the high school kids that Ugh, were... God. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I just feel like we should mention it because people are going to be like, yeah. I wonder what FKJ has to say about this. Yeah. So if you, depending on your news cycle, where you're at in the world, this past week, there was a lot of marches that happened in Washington, D.C., the pro-life march, women's march. And so there's these high school students from a Catholic uh, Catholic school that came to Washington, D.C. to be part of the pro-life march. And they ran into, ran into, they walked upon a indigenous people's march and there was an elder there drumming and singing in indigenous language and they heckled him like they surrounded him and one man specifically came up to him and just like stared him in the face like this white guy and his smirk is just it's very eye-opening also just incredibly ignorant of these high school students to not know basic history and or ignore basic history and also they didn't know this at the time but he is a vietnam vet so they're both you know, disrespecting veterans who I know uh, conservatives are very into supporting Mm -hmm. and just being like, of all people, like there is no there is no disagreement that the white man stole the land from Native Americans and you have the audacity to like Mm -hmm. go up to their face. And I feel the same way about when we talk about Native American mascots and how white men just get all angry Mm -hmm. about it. And it's just like of like really of all people, of all communities, Right. Like, really, it's no, like, no, yeah, no. I know. So so that happened. And so I just wanted to acknowledge it. And I think Rachel sums it up well with her, ugh. But anything <laughs> else you wanted to add to that? No, I mean, not really. Just that it's yeah. stomach turning and heartbreaking and scary. And just makes me really scared to see young, the way young men are being galvanized and radicalized on the wrong side of things at such a young age. Like, they all looked really young. Um, well, obviously they were high schoolers and it's, it's just scary. So. And what's even scarier is that there are adults at their school that are teaching them oh, these yeah. values. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. <sighs> but yeah, but I mean, it's like a reminder when people are like, I just, we just need all the old white men to die and then we'll be fine. And it's like, well, no, I mean, mm-hmm. especially, I mean, the alt-right movement is kind of ensuring that that is not the case. So it's, it's bad. All right. All right. <laughs> Um, cool dinner party yeah super hungry after that one there might be a little bit of i mean we're about to talk about a book that is also like cynical and depressed about the state of things but maybe we can find some hope in it we want to talk about capitalist realism that's the book that's our main topic of the day and it came to mind for me when we were having our episode from a couple weeks ago where we talked about the article that um sort of studied the impact of cell phones on mental health. And in our discussion, I just kept thinking about things that I'd heard about this book that I hadn't read yet. I'd listened to a couple of different podcast episodes about it and just seen Mark Fisher's writing other places. I think I actually read an article that he wrote about mental health that goes on at length more than he does in the book even. And so it came to mind in that conversation. And I was like, I'm going to not keep talking about capitalism if we can talk about this book later. So we both read it over the week. Was that, that, sorry, I'm breaking fourth wall again. But Mel, you said that you just, you enjoyed like having reading time this weekend doing that. Yeah, it it really brought me back to grad school days. Yeah. Of like, just sitting around and reading and yeah, taking notes. And it was great. Yeah, I liked it too. Yeah, I loved it. Yeah. So that's what we want to discuss. I I can try to sort of give a summary. It's he has multiple chapters and he digs into a lot of different things. I think the the most broad summary and then we'll get into some details is that 
He's trying to make sense of um, what I think a lot of people would sort of describe as late capitalism. He's calling it capitalist realism. He is trying to sort of differentiate some shifts in capitalism that have happened in sort of the past, I don't know. He, I mean, he talks about the shift to neoliberalism. So we're sort of talking about the 70s onward. But then he sort of says that even neoliberalism is sort of transforming shapes. So also sort of the past decade. He also focuses a lot on the financial crisis of 2008. So things that have happened since 2008. So different ways that capital capitalism as a system has sort of shape-shifted and the ways it's showing up in, in these different ways. He uses pop culture. So he has a lot of Almost every chapter has some kind of television show or movie that he's um, sort of drawing um, analogies to, which I think, Melody, I'm guessing you liked. I liked that. And then in, in, in other chapters, he's talking about, I think, something else that we probably both relate to a lot in terms of the sort of both bureaucracy and also surveillance and assessment that happens. And he's um, a lecturer, or he was rather, he sadly um, died by suicide, but he's a he was a lecturer in the UK. So it sounds like what's happening in the UK is very similar to what's happening in colleges in the US in terms of this huge focus on assessment and faculty members have to be the ones who do, do that. And then he also talks about mental health and, and how capitalism is related to that. Other things come up, we'll get into all of that, but broadly he's trying to sort of make sense of and also I don't know that he's offering many solutions. I, he does, I think he does try to offer some some sort of responses to this, but he's trying to make sense of it. He draws on a lot of theory. He's going to talk a lot about Lacan's notion of the real. He brings in Zizek a lot. Uh, Jameson, Frederick Jameson, to talk about postmodernism. And uh, I, I really loved I really loved reading it. So that's kind of a general summary. Do you think that's decent enough before we sort of dive in? Yeah. Can I just, can I just define capitalist realism? Please. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> so on page two, he says, capitalist realism is the widespread sense that not only is capitalism the only viable political and economic system but also that it is now impossible even to imagine a coherent alternative to it. And that, so pause. Okay. And and that to me, when I read that, it was like, oh, that's just like straight up hegemony. Not to say that he mm -hmm. is doing something that hegemony has already done. But it, if you understand the concept of hegemony, it's really similar. That just like it's this common sense, capitalism is this common sense thing that we that has been embedded into us and that we can't even question an alternative. Um, and then he also on the another page that he actually quotes somebody else. Badiou. How do you say that? B-A-D-I-O-U? I mean, I Badu. say Badu. I mean, some people might yeah. correct us killjoys if you want to, but I say Badu. Okay. But this other, so in quoting this, this other scholar, I think is helpful and part of the reason why I just hate capitalism. So, and, and the concept, like how powerful hegemony is. So, so for example, we let millions of Africans die of AIDS, but we don't make racist national declarations like um, dictators have. We kill Iraqis with their airplanes, but we don't cut their throats with machetes like they do in Rwanda, meaning that our system is always seen as better than other systems because it's like, OK, well, we might do these these bad things, but it's not as bad as the more as the third world developing countries do. So mm -hmm. you can't get mad at us. Our system is is the best. And we're told that and then we believe that and then it continues Completely. Yeah, I, t I underlined that that part too. And it, not even like, I mean, obviously out loud, they say it's not as bad, but it's not even about not being as bad. It's just not as sensational, right? And so like, it goes into this, I don't remember if he quotes Hannah Arendt at all, but a lot of people might be familiar with her theory of the banality of evil. So just like how banal and like commonplace evil <laughs> can be. And that's so the, that's just so capitalist Western 
societies. The U.S. and the U.K. is sort of what he talks about in particular, but I think any Western capitalist superpower, the obviously the U.S. has its own has this very particular stakeholder in that. So, yeah, that's a great, excellent. Thank you, teacher, professor, for taking the time to give his actual definition and expanding on that. My pleasure. Uh, <laughs> but I know you wanted to focus on the mental health section. I also want to, in that discussion, bring up his discussion about students, because I think we're experiencing that in our own classrooms. Totally. Well, we can start with mental health. I want to talk about a lot of stuff, but um, just because yeah. that's what reminded me of it in, in our last discussion. So I think a summary of his relatively, I think, uh, evocative and, or provocative rather, and um, controversial belief is that he basically... Blames, what page are you on? I'm on I'm on page 37. He basically okay. believes capitalism is the cause of mental health issues more than or even completely mm-hmm. ra- ra- completely rather than chemical biological brain sort of issues, which is really really fucking controversial, right? And so he, what he says, so page 37, he says the current ruling ont- ontology denies any possibility of a social causation of mental illness. The chemical biologization, I think, of mental illness is, of course, strictly commensurate with its depoliticization. Considering mental illness an individual chemico-biological problem has enormous benefits for capitalism. First, it reinforces capital's drive towards automistic individualization, in parentheses, you are sick because of your brain chemistry, Second, it provides an enormously lucrative market in which multinational pharmaceutical companies can peddle their pharmaceuticals. We can cure you with our SSRIs, for example. It goes without saying that all mental illnesses are neurologically instantiated. So he's he's conceding that stuff is happening in our brain. Like he's not denying the science that your brain will look different if you have particular types of mental illness. But this says nothing, he goes on, about their causation. If it is true, for instance, that depression is constituted by low serotonin levels, what still needs to be explained is why particular individuals have low levels of serotonin. This requires a social and political explanation, and the task of repoliticizing mental illness is an urgent one if the left wants to challenge capitalist realism. So I am very sympathetic to that. I think it, I understand why it might be like legitimately almost triggering for people. And we should probably put a trigger warning for like discussion of mental illness that is not a necessarily popular framework because I think it's, it's very important to people who struggle with whether it's mental illness, addiction, you know, whether you want to conflate those things or not. I think it's really important for some people to hold on to the idea that it is an illness that people can't that that we have no control over and it's scary to say like oh (laughs) it's actually our social structures that are perhaps causing this stuff that ends up getting seeped into our neurology and our biology so I get I get the hesitation I'm I would love to sort of hear what you want to push back on well the before he even got into that explanation he had brought up how stats have changed like how there's more people under quote unquote mental duress now than there were in the 70s. And I was wondering, as a um, pseudo expert in stats, sarcasm, <laughs> like there's also we've also had a huge shift in how un- how mental health has been unstigmatized or less stigma has happened around mental health recently and so i don't know what comes first like totally is, is it because we're reporting more mental we're comfortable reporting more than we were 
a couple decades ago. So I was, you know, his use of numbers in that regard, I was like, "Mm, that's not the most compelling use of stats I've ever seen. And yeah, I think it is, to your point, like it is a little triggering to be told that it's not genetic, it's not what you think it is. It's the system, you know, especially if you feel like myself where I'm very aware of the system and I fight against the system or like I see how it impacts me. And to be told that it's like, well, it's so embedded that you can't even you don't even know how much capitalism is impacting your psyche. So, you know, that is, of course, difficult. And also I'm on. But I At the same time, I do agree with him because it wasn't that long ago when we were talking about iGen that part of that author's argument is that the high rates of anxiety are linked to our smartphones, which is like capitalism in us in our hands, um, you know, trying to get us to buy things. And our beings, our self-esteem is often based on like how people react to us, which is usually based on like what we're wearing and how we look and where we are, which is often a capitalistic notion of what we can buy and purchase. So... I'm I'm with him like on the general thing like oh yeah I see anxiety going up because of smartphone use but I'm not ready to like give it all over to capitalism because I know that there is you know there's like genetic reasons why people have certain mental illnesses so for for example my brother my baby not my baby brother one of my brothers he was born <laughs> like and he says he was born with a fistful of mental illness mm. you know so like he wasn't even exposed to capitalism at that point yet and he like believes that, you know, it was just born into him. He just got the the bad draw of the genetics card. So, yeah, you, know, I, you know, so that's that's where I push back. But again, like you mentioned, it's personal. That's why it's not I'm not right. against the concept. It's just when it personally applies to you, you start thinking about it a little differently. Totally. The other thing I want to say is that anytime we get into genetic arguments, we have to be careful, though, because of the when we start saying like, this is genetic, this is biological, we're asserting the same kind of science that was used to defend racism, right, which has been debunked. So there's a lot of genetic, biological, neurological stuff that has seemed to be like true science and then actually isn't. And that's also true. So that was true with racism when people use and, you know, alt-right fascists use this today to um, dehumanize um, non-white people by saying, you know, science says that white people are superior, blah, 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 which is obviously garbage. This is also comes up when the debate about queer people, the whole born this way debate, I'm sure we've talked about this on the show before. So a lot of queer people don't want anybody to, to like assert or um, promote this notion that we were all like queer people are born that way, because that actually suggests that like there's some, you know, again, like essentially biological nature thing that is part of us that to create us this way. And like maybe that if that's true, then you could just fix it. Like you could isolate that gene cell and like, you know, make sure that nobody has to, you know, deal with the, the bad parts about being gay, whatever. In contrast, like I obviously like, you know, I didn't start identifying as queer until much later in life. And I don't think I was born that way. I think I started meeting hot butches and was like, great, I'm into this. And like, I want there to be room for that. So this is different. But I'm just saying like those genetic arguments can get really dicey. Does that make sense? No, I hear you. I just feel like maybe one way to talk about it then is that it can be either or. Like some people are, some people would argue that they were born trans or born mm-hmm, with mm-hmm. mental illness. Like, and But then other people, it's because of their surroundings. Right. 
that they develop a mental illness. So yeah. I guess with biology, yeah, I, I totally hear that with biology and science. I'm also not going to be a person that's going to like argue against science because that's what climate change deniers like right. to do. So I'm, but at the same time, like, I think it can be, it, it just depends. Like, I, I don't want to have a absolutist conversation yeah. that all people who have mental health issues got it from genetics. Right. It's just in my family, that's how it's worked out, um, whether by coincidence or just because that's how it was going to map out. But then at the same time, there's people that develop mental illness where there's no family history. I just know in like talking with my therapists and doctors that they're often very interested in family history because it's often a good signifier of what's to come. But it's also not to say that if you have mental illness in your family tree that you're going to develop a mental illness yourself, you know. Yeah. And then I... um, No, but then I get that like if the focus is always on genetics, then it takes away the possibility that your surroundings, such as capitalism or being in the military or any other kind of traumatic space, can de- can help you develop a mental illness. I'm totally, de- I totally believe that yeah. as well. So I'm both. Am, yeah, I totally. I think. I guess one more thing I'll say about like genetic stuff is, you know, there's also all this new research on generational trauma and what's the sort of difference between brain chemistry. Well, there, your you, mm-hmm. your brain chemistry is altered when you have trauma, and so. Even, you know, that for especially when I get into my like witchy spaces, like if your brother was born with a fistful of mental illness, like maybe you have some, you know, what's your background? What's your the one you're trying to study more of Swedish? You know, maybe you had some traumatic one of your Swedish ancestors had some, you know, deep trauma in the shift from uh, peasantry to industrial capitalists, you know, you know, who knows? Mm -hmm. And um, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so that's obviously getting a little bit. I'm getting into the woo there, but, but also there's studies, you you know, there's studies about this. So anyway, yeah, I think I, I want to, I want to agree like publicly with you, like that I'm not trying to say that it's only capitalism, but I do, I am very sympathetic to the argument because I do think that Mm -hmm. largely we are miserable because of the system and uh, Mm -hmm. yeah. So, so that's that. Yeah. And I think neither of us really brought this up, but I think we're both like totally in on his second part of how capitalism and mental health are connected about the SSRIs. Mm -hmm. And I'm on meds. Mm -hmm. So like I'm part of that system and I and I appreciate the medicine. At the same time, I'm very much aware that it my doctors do not talk to me about homeopathic or spiritual uh, solutions. You know, so they're also embedded in the system in which like it is impossible to think outside of the pharmaceutical companies who I can't stand and I support by buying my medicine. Um, I've just made the decision that it's right now medicine works for me better than anything else. But at the same time, like especially when we start talking about medical marijuana more like that's never entered into the system into my like in when they talk to me about what I need, mm-hmm. you know, even though like medical marijuana helps ext- like a lot with anxiety and so does CBD oil, um, but it's just not part of the discussion. And like they're and they're also trained to not they can't give that advice out like they're only trained to give out pharmaceutical information. Right. And that's not for all doctors, because I know that there's homeopathic doctors as well. But they'll say to me, like, I can't I can't officially tell you this, but I've heard that this supplement and this supplement helps a lot. But, you know, my regimen is to take this right. sp- specific medicine. Right. right. So, yeah, fuck fuck the cap. The pharmaceutical shit is like ridiculous, especially it's not even about like solving your problems through medicine, but the cost yep. of it. Like the I've been seeing a lot of 
horror stories about insulin with people with type one and type two diabetes and like the cost of insulin is just like, fuck you. Like seriously. And that's how capitalism and and mental health and and medicine all like start spiraling together. So we're living in the system where we can't afford medicine, but then these capitalist profit, what is that word that I love? Oh, rapacity, the rapacity of the pharmaceuticals Mm. that they just, they're like, so greedy that they'll just like well these people will die without insulin so we can charge whatever we want to get them this insulin like and that's the world we're living in you know or name whatever medicine it's just there is mental health medicines too that are very expensive well and that was the aids crisis Um, right i mean that was exactly what happened yeah (sighs) yeah it's it's enraging Hi, Killjoys. It's Rachel here popping in with a reminder on some places you can find us on the interweb and how you can support us. So you can always subscribe to us on your favorite podcast application. And of course, you get extra FKJ points if you leave us a review on iTunes. It is a wonderful way to spread the word and gain new followers, and we really appreciate it. On the social media tip, we you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can like our Facebook page, and you can also join our closed community page, Feminist Killjoys Community-WTFPower. We have a Spotify mixtape that you can search at Feminist Killjoys PhD mixtape. And if you want to support us financially and you have some extra dollars, you could donate to our Patreon or as a one-time thing on our website, just click on the birdie to make a one-time PayPal donation. Patreon donors also get access to the Killjoy Review newsletter. And of course, you can always email us at fkj.phd at gmail.com. And finally, you can leave us a voicemail at 414-858-7818. Again, 414-858-7818. Back to the show. I think a good transition that we're, I know you want to talk a little bit about his discussion of students, I think, is it's in the same chapter, so it's related. But maybe we could sort of talk about all of his commentary on, like, the academy and higher ed. I was super interested in that. Yeah, especially when you ended your earlier sentence about how we're all, like, living and, like, just trying to survive within the system. And he says that students, like, the, the eight, you know, I think it's millennials at this yeah. point that he would be teaching, were, like, he could see that. Yep. That they were just, like, drowning in capitalism. And he said... Just to start us off, he had noticed that students were trying to seek constant pleasure because of how horrific it was to live within the capitalistic system. Yeah. So that's why they're always listening to music. That's why they're always, just to add my own examples, like, you know, in between classes, they're watching Netflix, like they're not doing anything that would actually help them, I would argue, get them through the capitalistic system a little bit easier. They're just like oh, I have free time. Like, I want to smoke weed. I want to watch some videos. I want to listen to music. Yeah. And it's hard to get them out of that space. Completely. And I thought it was so interesting on page uh, 23. At the end, he says, um, he's talking about things being too boring. So the act of reading itself is too boring. So they're not going to do it. Yes. And I was like, we just talked about that with the Anne Helen Peterson article. And uh, you were saying that, that you know, we we crave, and I think it's, maybe slightly different than what he's talking about with his students because we, you know, we're like self-identified nerds who like want intellectual stimulation. And so that's like a little different, but it's still similar. I think me reading this book in the pleasure of my like comfortable living room this weekend was like 
it's still escapism to an extent, you know, like I'm thinking about theory and like wanting truly in my bones to like be, be a contribution in the fight to end capitalism. But like this wasn't boring, you know, this was pleasurable. So I relate. <laughs> yeah. So he says uh, about that to be bored simply means to be removed from the communicative sensation stimulus matrix of texting, YouTube and fast food to be denied for a moment the constant flow of sugary gratification on mm-hmm. demand. I think, and that's what really our students are struggling yeah. with, because more so than we did, because they're just, it's with them all the time in their pocket. Totally. Yeah. And so they have to make that constant decision not to pick up the sugar. Yeah. The, and eat their broccoli instead. And it's like. Which mm. we're saying is metaphors. No shame for people who eat sugar. Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. Please eat sugar. Um, yeah, completely. I mean, yeah, I wonder. I mean, I think we all do these thought experiments of like, what would it have been like if we had Instagram in middle school or, you know, whatever. I do sometimes think, like, I was so, both of us, I know, were so active in organizing and activism in college. And we had the internet. Like, I remember going home and, like, typing on LiveJournal about, you know, whatever protest I went to or whatever person I had a crush on. But, like, I don't know. I hope that I still would have wanted to be as engaged as I was. But, I mean, but now as an, and, and I, We've talked about this, you know, blaming a lot of it on being a tired, you know, working adult with multiple jobs that you just sometimes don't have energy to go to the activist meeting. But I wonder if it's also like, I, but I do have energy to go on Instagram, you know? I don't know. Yeah. I I mean, but at the same time, that argument can get debunked by like the, thinking about all the young activists that are out there. Completely. Like I was thinking about the Park, Parkland High School, the or the major... Well, the students from Parkland, I should say, that launched a huge movement. So there's still energy out there, but there's a lot more <laughs> like enticing things to do on your phone, which is perfect. It works for capitalism because you don't want people rebelling. Exactly. And the best way to do that is to get them like, you know, as part of the capitalistic system. And so phones are great because they just they really do. They just numb us to things. Completely. And it takes a lot of extra energy to get out from under there. Completely. So. And I think something that I relate to even more than just like pleasure scrolling or pleasure in what I think Mark Fisher is talking about his students were looking for is the ability to feel sufficiently engaged by doing stuff on the internet that's related to politics. So like left book and like left Twitter when people are just having like endless debates about you know, revolutionary theory and like, you know, making memes that are really funny and radical. And there's a huge culture of that now. Like, it's not like I would actually argue that since Fisher wrote this book, there's actually been quite a shift in youth politicization in both the left and the right. So we have Teen Vogue writing articles about Mm -hmm. Marx and anarchism and the black bloc. We have, you know, so many memes with Marx and anarchist figures and, you know, lefty Lenin, you know, all the things. And then we also have internet culture breeding the alt-right. So actually, there's quite a bit of politicization, I think. But a lot of those lefties and people on the right, thankfully, are exists kind of solely on the internet. So that's something interesting, too. We're kind That's kind of getting off Fisher's topic, but I just think that that's like a slight change since he wrote. Yeah, and I think he might say that there's always exceptions to the rules, yeah. you know? 
and that but then he would probably argue that like the systems that we're using within the internet are capitalistic systems anyways and we're not going on. like you just mentioned like you're happy that the alt-right stays pretty somewhat organized mostly online but for our benefit like it'd be nice if people were using that same amount of time and energy to organize on the streets mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but then at the same time it's like well maybe just things are changing in terms of our like how we're going to politically organize yeah. but you know there's just a lot of people that would you know argue that imagine if we took all that time and energy and used it with political action instead of being online but then that gets into the whole argument of like the the value of the internet and how some people just dismiss anything that happens on the internet is just a waste of time which is not the case and actually i just want to briefly mention this i was listening to another podcast that I think I've mentioned called The Lit Review. It's fantastic. I highly recommend people listen to it. And they, it's two women of color activists from Chicago that host it, and they bring people on to talk about a book, like one specific book. And they brought on Kelly Hayes, who, Kelly Hayes, who is one of my favorite writers and activists. And she was talking about Shane Burley's book on fascism. And she was talking about that anytime the alt-right says their message, whether it's in a public space or whether it's like in at a rally or online, that that is organizing because they're normalizing extreme fascist ideas. And as terrifying as that is, because they do a lot of messaging, I actually felt like, oh, well, then maybe it's then I guess that's also the same on the left, that as long as we're like normalizing really far left ideas, even on the Internet, that maybe that is actually organizing because we're shifting consciousness um and thoughts yeah, around it so makes sense. i don't know yeah anyway can i ask you a question about the headphones narrative that he had yeah in the book did you do you have students that wear their headphones into class and like don't take them off i was trying to remember if i noticed that i'm sure that's happened before i mean i th- oh my god it happens to me really all the time. interesting i mean i i yeah. guess i guess i mean i'm I'm envisioning that so i i mean i guess i i do know that that's true and you like and you know that there's people that just like keep their pods in yeah. their ear pods in even if they don't have music on but i i found it was really eye-opening so i can for listeners who haven't read this book he basically is arguing that the students that leave their ear pods in or their head like their giant headphones they'll say that they're not playing any music and that's what my students tell me too and for me it's like well it's just a form of disrespect because i can't tell that and there's just it's just disrespectful Mm -hmm, to mm -hmm. me call me (laughs) old-fashioned if you will but he's saying that they're so they like need to stay connected to this Mm -hmm. matrix that just feeling the ear pods in their ear makes them feel better that they're still connected to it and then in another scenario the i the pods are out but the music is playing, but at a level in which, like, they can't hear it. So the teacher w- or Mark Fisher was like, well, can you just turn it off then? And the student was kind of resisting. Mm-hmm. And Fisher w- was kind of theorizing that they just need to know that the Matrix is continuing. And that if they can't listen to it, at least the player, like the music player, can enjoy playing the music. Right. Which I thought was fascinating and also totally true. Um, I think th- that's why students have such a hard time disconnecting from their phones. Because... They need to know their comfort is in their phones and like being disconnected from it. Like it's like losing your blankie, your security blankie, you know, which is just from my perspective, scary to think about. But I can also empathize because I have my own comfort things. They're just not a smartphone. And so I just thought that that was really interesting because I I have last semester, I specifically had one student who would always wear Mm -hmm. them. And I was like, can you please take off your headphones? He's like, I don't have music on. And then he was trying to tell me that like he was listening to music to it makes him less anxious yeah. or something. Or I gave him that as an answer because I know one of my students, that's the reason why she did yeah. have 
headphones on. But he just like took that as the answer. He's like, oh, yes, it makes me feel less yeah. anxious. Um, yeah. And either he, that's true for him and he didn't realize it until I, su- you know, suggested that or it was just an easy out to keep wearing his his headphones. But it's a. Uh, yeah. I just see students walking around all the time with their headphones in and they're talking to people and I don't, I just, I don't, I don't get it. I don't get the young kids with the yeah. headphones. Yeah. No, I mean, I think he's, I think, I think that his theory of it makes sense. Totally. We're running out. We're low on time. Okay. What, do you want to mention like one more thing, one more subtopic? Yeah. I mean, oh, there's so, there's so much there. Oh, it's hard to pick one. I guess I would like to talk about his discussion of the shift from like Fordist approaches to labor to the sort of what he's describing is basically the gig economy. And his descriptions, even in 2009, I guess, when he wrote this book, are just so dead on to what we are living in today. And it was happening Mm -hmm, back then, mm -hmm. but not nearly to the level that it is. And this is just like... I I just felt like I was reading a psychic. I mean, which is, I mean, it was pretty easy to predict that this was the direction it was going, but it was still just like, holy shit, he's describing exactly what is happening. And that is just what we all know, but he just says it really, I think, he he historicizes it and he theorizes it in a way that I think is really um, smart. But basically he's describing that, you know, there's no more permanent jobs and there's, you know, we're all we're all hustling to, you know, have all of these different part-time shifts and jobs. And that includes in higher education that, you know, people are picking up these classes, you know, in, in you know, tiny spurts, which is what adjuncts do. And what I think is interesting, let me see if I can find the page. I think, I can't remember if he explicitly said this or if this is where my sort of brain went. But basically, it's like, in some ways, the post-Fortist solution to work was because he does explicitly say this because the labor movement was like, we, you shouldn't, you know, people shouldn't have to be expected to work all of these hours, you know, to the bone, da, da, da. And so it was like, well, okay, then we won't give anybody these full-time positions that are draining and horrible, you know, fend for yourself, like figure it out and have more free time, whatever to like, but you can't have more free time if you're not making money. So I'm really interested in his discussion of, of this conflict between not wanting to work ourselves to the bone and also, like, needing money to live. <laughs> and uh, does that make sense? Like, we, of course we don't, you know, the the dream for academics is the tenure track job. But in the tenure track job, you're working, like, sometimes 60-hour weeks, if not more. You know, you have to be on all these committees. You have to do all this stuff. But you're getting well compensated, and you get to have, you know, summers off, and then you get a sabbatical at some point. So, but, but that also is like so draining and exhausting. Like I have, you know, I have friends who are adjuncts who are depressed because they don't have secure income, myself included. And then I have friends who are tenure track professors who are depressed because they're working all the time and feeling like, you know, not fulfilled by it because a lot of it is like serving on committees, including assessment committees, which he gets into, which I think was also really smart. Like no longer do schools hire out to assess things. They make faculty start to assess themselves. And it's like the self-surveillance thing. So I don't know. Does that do, do these talking points like spur anything for you? Well, it also brings to mind his discussion that was dead on as well, is that how work is no longer tied just to your workspace. Mm-hmm. And I think that was another way that capitalism solved the, you know, well, these grinding jobs are too you know, people are complaining about them. So within the the shift to the information economy, we'll make it flexible, right? For people, we'll have these things like email and, 
you know, Google Drive where you can actually do work from home. Mm -hmm. So then you don't feel so stuck to the desk and that makes people feel better. But then the cycle continues. And what ends up happening is that you're just then always on call for work. And so it's a different form of working 10 or 12 hours but it's more it's more mental because you always have to be thinking about work you can never really be off because there's always an email to check or a social media thing to post if you're in that completely you know if you're in that spectrum so completely that's just another layer to it yeah thank you for bringing that up that's i did a lot of underlining in that part too he also he's using he uses the movie office space as an example of like mm-hmm. how you get this mm-hmm. in offices, but you also get this in things like basically TGI Fridays. If you've seen the movie, you know that Jennifer Aniston's character like is scolded for sh- – they have a minimum amount of quote-unquote flair they're supposed to put on their smock mm-hmm. or whatever, um, their apron. And uh, there's this whole scene where the manager is basically like, you only, you're only wearing the required amount. And she was like, right, that's how many I have to wear. And he was like, but don't you want to go above and beyond? And it's like – I mean, I, I've gotten those messages – from my corporate yoga studio, like if you, you know, if you want to really show how much mm-hmm. you love your students, you'll stay after your your half hour shift at the desk to teach a student a pose that they didn't understand in class or whatever. And you're just supposed mm-hmm. to, you know, do that. I also remember seeing a movie in an org com class about um, like a documentary about court, like um, Silicon Valley workers, like choosing parking spaces accurately because you have to like try to look like you're the first one in the parking lot and the last like and the last one to leave Mm. and just Mm -hmm. like literally we're being trained to find Mm -hmm. ways to exploit our labor so that we like look like we're to like be rewarded for that but we're literally just Mm -hmm. like self-exploiting our labor (laughs) like and and professors do this especially adjuncts who don't get paid well Mm -hmm. we do this all the goddamn time Mm-hmm. So we we literally work for free when we're prepping our classes, like mm-hmm. hours and hours and hours of work for for no money. Ugh. <laughs> yes, so super right on commentary about that as well. So we could say a lot more, but um, thank you, Melody, for joining me in a in a theory book. I enjoyed reading it. It was very accessible. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's only eighty yep. pages. Yeah, so. so we recommend it. Um, yeah, it's a little book. Great. Okay, so that's probably what we were both reading. Are we reading anything else for our RWLs? Yes, I'm reading about Instagram ads and their links to Chinese products. Mm. Just as an FYI, I've gotten like sucked into a few of them. Like you'll find like they'll advertise like cute shoes or cute. Like for me, it's baby clothes because I because they follow me around the Internet. And twice now I've ordered off of some of these sites and they're I didn't even like check into them, but they ship from China, which is like it. It's I didn't want that. Yeah. Like so basically you order one thing and they send you one thing from China. Yeah. And then but they don't tell you that until you have to look in their FAQ. Like it's not, they act like they're an American company. Right. So I've been reading articles about it because I'm like, what is going on on Instagram? Yeah. Like a lot of these companies that are advertising are like shell companies from China. Right, right. Did you know about that? I did because I've been sort of being targeted by them since like yeah, Facebook, you know. So okay. I started to have that awareness when I ordered something, you know. Got um, it. Yeah, this is the first time that I ordered something because I was like, oh, those are cute. Yeah. I have been looking for those and they're cheap. Right. And of course, because when you go to the site, they're like, oh, half off for the next four hours. Right. 
and they totally got me. Yep, yep, yep. yep. Ah! I know, I know. But there's always, it's always half off on the website. Right. <laughs> um, anyway, so I've been looking into that. I've been watching, I've, I love this clip from SNL from last night. It's called Leave Me Alone, and it's a commercial. Uh-huh. You can buy an urn. Did you see this? No, I haven't yet. So women can buy urns to carry with them. So then when men start inappropriate conversations, you can take it out and be like, I just, I thought he'd like the ocean. And then it gets them to go away. Right. So That's great. Yep. And then I've been listening to, thank you to my students, somebody suggested Brian Eno. He does a lot of ambient music now. Which yeah. I, I know him through David Bowie. So I was like, how do you, I'm sorry, 18 year old, how do you know who Brian Eno is? <laughs> right. He does ambient music. And I'm like, oh, okay. That's funny. So yeah. I've been listening to him. It's been very enjoyable. That's great. Great. What, what about um, you? I, other than just sort of materials for class now, it was just class materials and capitalist realism. That's really all I have to contribute for reading. Watching, though, a lot of stuff. Logan and I were trying to make it through a lot of TV shows that everybody's talking about that I wanted to talk about with my students and with my friends. So we started Sex Education, which is on Netflix. And it's cute. I don't, like, love it, but I like it. We do watch The Good Place, and I'm, like, I go back and forth with if I love The Good Place or just, like, enjoy it. But I like... The last few episodes were very thought-provoking, and I enjoyed that. And I feel oh, and we also also watched the Fire Festival documentary. Have you watched either of those? No. What's a Fire Festival documentary? Oh my God, Melody, you okay. have to watch this. Is it like that one oh that God. one documentary, uh, the Wild Plate or the Wild? No, it's shorter, more accessible. You won't have to spend as much time on it. Um, it's also okay. not like quite as like it's not quite as like told as compellingly, but it, it's it's fascinating and it will enrage you and like fascinate you and. I bet your students will talk about it, so definitely watch it. It's I don't know if you, you might remember once you start watching it, there was an incident with basically a very, very wealthy like influencer tried to create a, a festival with like co-create it with Ja Rule yes. on this island that they bought, and then it was like a complete disaster. Um, oh, so it's there's a, a documentary, documentary two two different ones. Oh. Netflix has one and Hulu has one. So yeah, oh, check it out. I see. Yep. Maybe we can talk about that next. Oh next yes, episode, I totally yeah. remember that whole situation because there's yep. like because yep. I didn't feel bad for the concert goers that were stranded right. on that island because they were gazillionaires. Yeah, and I and you still, I mean, again, as usual, not a ton of sympathy for rich people, but you will, I think, have a little sympathy given like just how shady as fuck the organizer was oh sure yes yeah i mean so anyway it's pretty fascinating so watch that and then listening um i was listening to bikini kill this week because they announced their reunion tour um i'm not gonna go i i didn't try to get tickets because i i don't love crowds and going to new york would be expensive and so i just decided to not you know to sit this one out but um i thought maybe Whoever wants to listen to Bikini Kill on one of the nights that it's happening, we could have a little, like, not expensive listening party. So I've been listening to Bikini Kill. That's a great... You did hear about that, right? Oh, I did. The tour. That is okay. not actually a tour because it's too... Right. It's too short. Yeah, exactly. going on. It's like, who wrote that press release? Because nobody... I know, I know. Or maybe nobody... <laughs> like, the press release didn't say a tour, but then journalists were like, tour, and then it just right. starts cycling and... Right, right, totally. I know, because I clicked, because at first it was like, here's the LA show, here's the New York show, but then I saw the article that's a tour, and I was like, oh, there'll be a list of all these cities, Mm -hmm. and I was like, oh, no. (laughs) Just those coasters who think that's all that matters. Yep. Okay, cool. Well, FKJ. Power. Power.